So the conductress is using their false papers as an example to show to actual Germans And welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at Sergeant Cyril Rofe of 40 Squadron Bomber Command Royal Air Force. Now, quite an interesting one, this one, actually. I related to this in a way because every time I pick up my little girl from school, I drive past this man's house, which still stands today down in Sussex. So I was quite interested to read up about him. Mm. And he had quite an interesting early life, both in civilian terms, because his profession before the war was hotel manager as we will see and he had an interesting service career actually before he joined the royal air force so he was born in cairo in april 1916 and he had a partial education in bristol but also in switzerland I didn't quite find out what his parents did, but they, for whatever reason, moved around quite a lot because he then trained in hotel management at the Swiss Hotel School in Lausanne and then came back to the UK to run the Mayfair Hotel in London before going back to the Bristol Hotel in Vienna. So he travelled around a lot. You know, his residence at the time of being in the Royal Air Force was East Sussex. So he acquired a love of opera and skiing whilst in Vienna. And obviously he was there in the run-up to the war and he was still present when the annexation of Austria happened in March of 1938. Is that the one with the very famous referendum voting paper where basically the option is do you want to annex with Germany yes or no and the box for yes is like twice the size of the no box. That that will be the very one. The very very biased one. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well I mean he was there and he's of Jewish background so a difficult time to be in Austria. He did actually get out at 10 days after the annexation and he volunteered for aircrew but there wasn't much in the way of training slots for him to be taken on as aircrew so he joined the Scots Guards a fine regiment and he joined a very interesting division of the Scots Guards which I had never heard of before and had great fun looking up it was the Scots Guards Special Ski Battalion okay Never heard of them. I had never heard of them. Well, it was a very little known and very short-lived unit. Now, I can see where they were going with this and the need for it. Because obviously, war is breaking out. There's an awful lot going on. And they were just obviously throwing around ideas. The ideas that came out about from this were absolutely fascinating. So the unit was formed to be a response to the plight of the Finns who were engaged in the Winter War with Russia. Now, whilst it came under the umbrella of the Scots Guards, it was decided it was going to be made up from volunteers not just from regiments within the army, but also civilian life. Hence why he got in, because he was still waiting call-up from the Royal Air Force. But instead of teaching a trained and disciplined group of soldiers who already knew how to go to war, they chose primarily to recruit experienced skiers first, and they asked for volunteers in January of 1940. Now, it's quite obvious then that they were going to get a lot of responses. They had over a thousand responses of people who wanted to go to war by skiing. And basically, they selected this down to nearly 600 to go off for training. Now, that was in late part of 1939, early part of 1940. And rather than, as you would have thought, Scots Guard Battalion training in Scotland, they decided to go to Chamonix mm-hmm. and do all of their training there. 
So it was really interesting that when I read some of the reports on this, it said the company was generally billeted in areas of great comfort in many hotels and the heavy baggage meandered across France for two days on a goods train. So they didn't even take their own bags. It was not until the third day after they arrived in Chamonix that two things occurred. One, they got issued their ski equipment, and two, that period of inactivity had revealed the unforeseen issue that the pool of people that they had chosen from, quote, had not spent any purposeful time in their life in a kitchen and were therefore unable to cook. The consequence, it says, to the joy of local patrons is that they were wined and dined in the restaurants and cafes of Chamonix whilst undergoing their training. Needless to say, this wasn't to last very long, because in March 1940, they were called to come back to the UK and then to embark from Glasgow onwards to go to Finland. Now, I didn't know a huge amount about the Winter War with the Finns and the Russians. However, the unit did return back on the train up to Glasgow. The message came through that basically the Finnish Prime Minister had gone to Moscow to seek terms to end the Winter War. And effectively, with that war over as a capitulation, they decided to cancel the Scottish Guards ski battalion and there ended his short first service in the military in a ski battalion i'm not sure i have anything to add on that it's incredible isn't it i mean i'm wondering if it's quite indicative of the time because obviously you know war has been declared we've dispatched a large number of people to france in the british expeditionary force there's a lot of what ifs what will and what should we prepare for i can see the sense of having if you're going to get into a winter war, mm-hmm. mobilising and moving of troops is really important. If you've got a battalion that can ski, that's fantastic. However, I've looked a lot at operations in the early part of the war for various different reasons. We used to get quite a lot of snow in the winter, particularly in Scotland. One would have thought it would be most ideal to do your training at home where you have infrastructure. I can't imagine there's much military infrastructure in Chamonix. By the example that they had to use restaurants and cafes to wine and dine, it's an interesting scenario. So it very much feels within the spirit of things like SOE, where it's think the unthinkable, do the undoable sort of spirit, whereby think outside the box, consider what may or may not be needed, and just go and do it. bit like the SES establishment under David Sterling. He just Mm. made it happen because he saw a gap in the market, for want of a better description. Sounds similar to that. However, as you say, Scotland isn't short of its cold weather. So there would be no shortage of snow for training in Scotland. You, you're right, you wouldn't have to go to Chamonix in, in and of itself. Which makes me suspect that this was, dare I say it, posh officers looking to recreate the winter skiing season of the pre-war era under a different guise, if you were to call me cynical. If we were, yes. yes. Uh, I mean, I, I have no evidence either way on that. It just says it was a broad spectrum of people from military and civil life. In, so, in, indeed, yes. indeed. But equally, you could also argue that you mentioned the Finnish war, but of course, only a month later in April 1940, the Norwegian campaign took off. Absolutely. So there is genuinely an arguable debate to be had around whether there was a need for a skiing battalion and look at special operations when we used to send people to sweden i mean the, mm. the swedes would train or was a good training ground for both allied and axis forces in winter warfare i think the big question i have and i genuinely don't know i have skied once or twice but i'm no expert on it is for something like winter warfare, what you really need is cross-country skiing experience. I would have said so, yeah. Carrying heavy weights and sledges. Mm -hmm. 
which the Norwegians and the Finns, I imagine, would have a lot of experience of. Yes. I'm not aware that there is so much need to slalom or downhill skiing, which, from my limited knowledge of Chamonix, is more... I think what it's suited to. Exactly. Yes. I suspect there was a lot of contacts there that were able to help and assist, and it was a good place to go because... People knew people, probably. The result of which, though, is that was disbanded in March. And promptly afterwards, his papers turned up for him to go and train in the Royal Air Force. And he trained as an observer. And the observer at that time of the war was effectively, particularly in Bomber Command, was a dual role of navigator and bomb aimer. He was a short, wiry, and always determined man. That probably helped, actually, being in a Wellington, because that's what he was shot down with. There's not Mm. much room in a Wellington. And he was an observer on that when he was attached to 40 Squadron, which was based at Alconbury. And he would be lost on a mission on June the 11th, 1941. Now, on that night... 241 bombers were being sent to targets of Dusseldorf, Duisburg and Boulogne. Unfortunately, dense fog frustrated the mission to Dusseldorf, but the planes on the way to Duisburg would be successful. Now, their target that night was Dusseldorf, and the beginning of the mission went smoothly, and they got over their first marker, and they were on course until the tail gunners warned of a night fighter. Now, he mentions this in his report, because his report doesn't go into much detail. The wonderful thing of hindsight is we can research this all a lot more. He basically says, we took off from Alconbury at 2300 hours in a Wellington aircraft. The aircraft was attacked by a night fighter over the Dutch coast and we crashed into the Mars estuary at about quarter past midnight. Now that does leave out an awful lot because the research that has gone about since then said that they actually managed to get away from the night fighter but they were caught in a large number of search beams. The pilot put the Wellington into a steep dive to avoid the searchlights and then they managed to get back on course again but they never made it to their target. They were forced quite low and they were hit according to the German report by an awful lot of localised flak and small arms. Now according to some of the crew the pilot was blinded by the searchlight and ditched the aeroplane by accident. That's quite a task to achieve at night hitting the sea by accident. So there's a little bit of questions, Mm. shall we say, around this. But the impact of that broke the aeroplane into bits and Cyril was actually thrown clear, landing on a portion of wing. Now he does mention that his right arm was broken during the crash and that the crew stayed on a sandbank until daylight because they were unable to get to shore, by which point they were helped off by the Germans. All of the crew were to be taken prisoner and they were taken into safety. Some of them were injured as well, not just Rofe, but they effectively had to wait for the Germans to come and pick them up. So there was no ability or attempt to even try and escape up until that point. So he mentions that upon pickup, himself and two other crew members who had been injured were taken to a first aid post where they stayed for an hour. And then subsequently from that, they were taken by ambulance to a Luftwaffe hospital in Amsterdam and they stayed there for a month. Now, having been released from that hospital, they then went by train to Dulagluft, as we would expect. Everybody at the time was being taken there for questioning. Mm -hmm. He he doesn't really mention anything about questioning in his report, other than that one of his crew members on the 20th August was sent onto a prisoner of war camp. But he was actually to remain at a hospital near Dulagluft until the 19th of September, when he ended up being sent to Stag 8B at Lansdorf, which we've covered. Mm. a number of times he got there on the 22nd of september and then ended up staying in hospital there as well until the 1st of march 1942 he says during this period he was exceptionally well treated now that's a long time Mm -hmm. for a broken arm i mean if you're looking at middle of june to the start of march undergoing hospital treatment quite a lot 
But he then does seem to move around a huge amount. There's many camps on his list of places that he attended on his little tour of Europe. Yes, there are. In fact, he was to spend the next three years hopping around 15 different camps. God, that's probably more than average. More than most, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he was a sergeant at the time, so I imagine a large number of them are working camps. Yes, they were. And in actual fact, most of them were satellite camps of Lambsdorff itself. Okay. So quite often what he was doing was going back and forth from Lambsdorff right. to a working camp and then coming back and going out again or even just moving between working camps as and when the work finished. And in actual fact, while we have the report, there is actually a post-war book that he wrote, which I think came out in the 1950s called Against the Wind. Yeah. And he goes into a lot more detail about these camps and what he did. And it was various working things, like everything from a mine to a sawmill, yes. roles that yeah. he was participating in. So he was just constantly on the lookout for an escape. So whenever he would arrive, he would suss the place out for its escapability. Nice. And if it was insufficiently escapable, he would effectively go on strike or just make himself difficult and awkward. (laughs) Which we have come across before. Which we have come across before, the purpose of which was to be sent back to the main camp at Lambsdorff and then to be redeployed to another working camp, which he hoped would be more effective. And Mm. this worked on several different occasions. However, it is worth noting that as he was Jewish, it is quite a high-risk approach for him to take. It is. I'm sure I read somewhere that so certainly earlier in the war, Jewish prisoners of war were not treated any differently to any other prisoner of war. It didn't necessarily matter. I think that changed probably quite late in the war when things were getting quite desperate. And to be certainly an escaper and out of the confines of a prisoner of war camp was a very risky thing. Yes, I mean, we, we did cover this in, in greater depth in the episode on Gavelber, That's right. Uh, who was a Palestinian Jew. And... Yes, by and large, they came under the status of prisoner of war rather than a Jew, in that sense. And therefore, they were treated as a prisoner of war. But nonetheless, within the context of being a prisoner of war, they could be treated fairly badly. And it was certainly quite a high-risk approach to actively go out of your way to annoy your captors. Yeah. And an even higher-risk approach to purposefully escape from your captors particularly when you've got the likes of the Gestapo and other branches of German homeland security waiting for you outside the camp. Yes. It was quite a high-risk approach that Rolf and Gewelber previously were taking. As a side note, the code writer at Colditz was a gentleman called Julius Green, and he was Jewish as well, and he actively went out of his way to hide his status on a number of different occasions, even posing as a Presbyterian, you know, the Scottish Kirk, in order to try and hide that side of his identity for self-preservation reasons. And certainly, as far as I'm concerned, no judgment there. No, none at all. It was a, a gutsy career move to declare yourself as a Jew and to escape, and while Julius Green didn't particularly escape, or make any great effort to escape. Discretion was the better part of valour in his case. It's an interesting side note that not all took the same approach, even even though he was in Colditz, he was a, he was the dentist there. Mm, okay. um, so he was involved in escape through his code writing, but he made no active effort to escape himself. So, as I say, Rolf was to bump around 15 different camps or so, mostly satellite camps over the next couple of years. Despite that, he was to make several escape attempts. And as I say, he was to suss out pretty much every location for its escapability from the moment he walked through the door. 
So having been captured on the 12th of June 1941, as you say, he was then to spend about the next nine months in hospital. He was to make his first escape attempt on the 1st of August 1942. So this is only a couple of months after he's really entered the prison population. And he was to make his escape from a working camp at Altrotzwasser. And while he doesn't specify precisely what it was he was doing at this working camp, he does state that they got out of the camp by climbing first through the lavatory trench and then cutting through the wire fence surrounding the camp. Now that sounds both high risk and deeply unpleasant. Oh yes. No one wants to crawl through the lavatory trench. No. And cutting through the wire is extremely high risk. In fact, I think we've previously said that one escape report stated that the most insane route of escape was by going through the wire. Yeah. Because it, it basically just makes you a sitting target right next to the wire, which means that any guard within shooting distance of you is, is going to use your torso as target practice. Yeah. Nonetheless, while I can't imagine that they smelled particularly fresh after this particular effort, they did manage to get out and were to stay out for quite some time, actually. Mm -hmm. So they started off by walking southeast and were hiding in woods during the day. And they repeated this process for 10 days until the 11th of August. So they got out on the 1st of August 1942 and they were to walk during the night and hide up in woods during the day for 10 days. On the 11th of August, they were hiding in a wood when himself and a Sergeant Luxembourg, who he was escaping with, were apprehended by a member of the Heimwehr at Hinterdorf. And they were then escorted to Verbenthal and handed over to the police, where they were to remain in the cell until the 14th of August, so a further three days in the cells, where they were then taken to a German army HQ at Freivalden. They were then sentenced to 10 days in the cell, and on the 26th of August they were taken to Niklasdorf to a working camp. So they haven't actually gone back to Lambsdorf, they've just been taken to the next working camp, so they've basically been reassigned. But nonetheless, they were to be out for three and a half weeks, although they were captured after 10 days, they were to be out for three and a half weeks and eventually returned to this working camp. So having been taken to Niklasdorf, he was to stay there for a month until September 1942, and he was then moved to Tarnowitz to another working camp where he was to be there from September until May 1943. In May 1943, he was then moved to Yevorsno, where he was to remain there until June 1943. And when I say he was to remain there until June 1943, what I mean is... He escaped from Yevorsno in June 1943. Oh, I see. So on the 12th of June 1943, he states, I climbed through a window of the bathhouse after having a shower at the end of my shift in the mine. So almost directly polar opposite to his previous escape attempt. Having gone from a toilet trench, he's now washed, dressed, cleaned, gone through the shower. Much better. Much better state in which to be trying to make your escape. Less conspicuous, you might say, as well. Mm -hmm. So having got out of the bathhouse, he then crawled through a hole in the fence surrounding the mine that he was working in. He had arranged to meet a Polish civilian with whom he had been working in the mine, but this Polish civilian was not at the appointed place when Rolf arrived there. So Rolf then walked until daylight the following morning and then approached a house where he was given a meal and allowed to dry his clothes. He was then given directions to a village where they believed that this Polish miner lived. However, during the afternoon he walked towards this village and met a Polish civilian who offered to assist him. Now he did receive assistance and was to stay at various houses until the 30th of June. So we're talking about 18 days, nearly three weeks later. Mm -hmm. So he's been on the run a little while being hidden by Polish civilians. When, while walking through a town, some of the Polish people there handed him over to the mayor because they knew he was Jewish. Interesting. Mm. So having been handed over to the mayor, he was then taken to a nearby town and handed over to the Polish police. 
where he was put in a cell overnight and then taken to Mikov and handed over to the German criminal police. Now, we go back to what I said earlier, that it's an occupational hazard to be Jewish and escaping mm -hmm. because there are lots of very unfriendly home security organisations only too ready to treat you poorly. It was not a warm welcome, to say the least. And he was kept in a cell for five days when he was then taken to Krakow. And from Krakow, he was taken to a punishment camp on the southern outskirts and kept again in a cell for another four days when he was then returned to Lambsdorff. He was then detained in a cell for another day and then sent on another working party on the 17th of October. So again, he's been out for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. He's got to know the lay of the land in Poland around him and made several contacts and got an idea of kind of what opportunities and escape opportunities and where help may or may not be coming from. So he is learning, and this comes across quite clearly in the book, that the more experience he gets, the more he learns and understands what opportunities are out there and how best to go about an escape. And so he is building up that experience, which is ultimately to prove quite useful as we get further along. So in January 1944, he was to make a further escape attempt from a working party in a forest. And he and another private, a uh, private Leduc, were planning to escape together. But they were watched so closely that when they returned to camp, they were searched. So clearly the guards had got a bit suspicious of him. Possibly a combination of repeated escape attempts and also a combination of constantly creating so much trouble on these working parties that... He was a target he for was, their attention. He became a bit of a target and I can't imagine being Jewish helped either. No. And so when they were searched, Private Leduc, his companion, had managed to give his false papers to another member of the working party, but uh, Rolf had not managed to do so. And so his papers were discovered and therefore he was kept in a cell again for 10 days awaiting investigation. And once again, he was returned back to Lambsdorff. So although he didn't manage to get out this time, he was planning an escape and they had all their papers ready. I mean, they had their papers on them in order to make an escape that day, but they were so closely watched. Mm that they were unable to do so and eventually were discovered as a result of the search due to the suspicion that was placed upon them. So on to his fourth and final escape attempt. So in August 1944, he and the Corporal Charles Hillebrand managed to escape from a working party in Schomburg. Now the work that they were doing was erecting wooden bungalows on the outskirts of the town and they were to start work at six o'clock every morning. Now, I wonder to some extent how much they decided to make their escape very early in the morning, partly in order to buy themselves time and also partly because people haven't really woken up at that time that's a good point. of the morning. Yeah, that's a good point. And so he says, we commenced work at 0600 hours and about a minute later we went into an empty bungalow and took off our overalls. We then walked away from the site dressed in new civilian clothes which we've been wearing under the overalls. We then travelled by tram to a nearby town arriving there at 0630 hours and while waiting there for a tram to Katowice, we were approached by a member of the German Feldgendarmerie who asked me to tell him the time. As he spoke broken English, after I danced him, he stated that he was a Ukrainian. So in this case, Rolf actually speaks better German, having lived in Vienna and, yeah. and Switzerland. That's fantastic he, though, isn't it? He's actually questioning the German policeman and oh, discovers that he's Ukrainian. That's brilliant. And so what ended up happening was they actually travelled on the tram together and were just having a chat and discussed various topics. And Which has got to be one of your best covers going, surely. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, he states in the book that people weren't willing to approach him because he was clearly chatting to a German policeman. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. It's a great cover. Absolutely yeah. great cover. So Rolf and Hillebrand got off the tram at Katowice and then travelled onwards to Bielsko. And while they were travelling to Bielsko, their papers were examined by the conductress. 
some of the Germans travelling in the same compartment of the train were not carrying proper travel permits and the conductress actually took their papers and showed them to the other Germans travelling on the train and explained that this was what was required. So the conductress is using their false papers as an example to show to actual Germans what papers they should be He must have been beside himself as to what was going on. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'm speechless for once. You've got to give credit to the forgers as well. Yeah, completely. They might have had many years of practice at this point. We are talking August 1944. Absolutely, yep. But that's incredible. Mm, Very impressive. So they arrived at Bielsko at around about 10 o'clock in the morning on the 20th of August. So this is only four hours after they've escaped. And an air raid alert was sounded soon afterwards. So they went to an air raid shelter. About an hour later, 11 in the morning, it was announced that the train that they were hoping to catch was about to depart. So they left the shelter and travelled third class, arriving at Zivich at around about midday. Now there's a lovely bit of detail here, which he says that during the journey we saw 24 twin-engine aircraft flying in formation at about 6,000 feet. As an RAF serviceman, that must have been warming the cockles of his heart watching his own service bombing the enemy. Yes. Yes, I imagine it did. But, I mean, it's, it's that point of the war, isn't it? The tide is turning. Well, tide is well and truly turned by mm. August 44. So when they arrived, there was still an air raid going on, so they went into the shelter for a little while, and then after the all-clear was sounded, they then left the station and walked through the town to a wood on the eastern outskirts. There they destroyed their false travel permits but retained the false identity papers. Now, having just used that as an exemplar, you might be questioning why they've done this, but travel permits that often actually state you're only allowed to go so far. So the likelihood is these travel permits stated that they were only allowed to go to Zivich, when in actual fact they're planning to go all the way to Russia. Yeah. Even if they don't get as far as the Eastern Front, if they're caught beyond Zivich and have papers that state they're only allowed to go to Zivich, they're getting arrested. Yes. To get rid of the travel permit, they can then try and make up an excuse, try and get by on their false papers. Oh, I forgot them and left at home. That sort of thing. Yeah, I get it. So that's why they've destroyed these excellent papers. Having done so, they then changed their shoes for boots because they're now planning to walk cross-country and then started to walk east until the evening when they slept in the woods. Now, in effect, the next couple of days and weeks is just them slowly moving on foot towards the Eastern Front. So their plan is to head towards the Eastern Front to try and make contact with the Red Army, which of course is advancing towards Poland at this point. And in fact may even be within the boundaries of Poland by this stage of the war. Now, without kind of giving just a, a list of locations that they visit on each evening... It's a worthwhile summary to understand what the plan of action is. Right. So in effect, they spend the next month or so making their way east. So first they cross German-Slovak frontier, which he says were marked with white stones having a D on one side and an S on the other. D, of course, being for Deutschland, mm-hmm. S for Slovakia. And as they continued east, they didn't know they were in Poland until they noticed a sign that was written in Polish, so they assumed that they were in Poland. Seems fairly safe, yeah. but nonetheless, they're winging it a little bit. And along the way, they're being given shelter and meals, and a couple of days after they'd escaped, they're making their way east through Poland. And they were given a lift on a cart, but eventually they had to jump down and go by foot again. And while they were walking southeast across country, he states that they had to make a large number of detours as there were several German soldiers and Polish civilians taking trenches in that area. Now, I think we have to assume that these are probably defensive trenches, mm. given the imminent arrival of the Red Army by this stage. Yeah. But of course, it's still not in his interest to go particularly near them. He's not necessarily that close to the front. These are several miles behind the front line. But they're preparing for the advance, if you like. And it's a brutal front to be approaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd rather be going west, personally. Ditto. 
And in August 44, he had that option. But I think in this case, it's because he's made so many escapes east in the past that he made the decision to continue going yeah. east. He knew and understood Poland better than he knew and understood heading towards France mm. because he had done it so many times, so he did it again. Yeah. So on the 24th of August, having been walking east and sleeping in the woods for about four or five days by this stage, Hillebrand was feeling unwell, and so they approached the house and were given permission to stay in the barn. Now, while staying in the barn, they were given food, and they remained in the barn until the following morning, when again they started walking east. And they eventually reached the river Dunayek, which was about 20 kilometres southwest of Novisach. While attempting to cross the river, Hillebrand fell into the water and actually lost his boots. So he then had to walk cross-country in shoes, which does not sound pleasant. No. And in the end, they actually ended up crossing the river by boat about two hours later. He just held on. He might have actually been able to walk further in his boots, which sounds a bit more manageable. And that night, they managed to spend the night in the barn and then resume walking east the following morning. On the evening of the 31st of August, they had met up with some escaped Russian prisoners of war. Interesting. Now, we don't come across them too often because usually they are so emaciated that they're unable to actually make an escape. I mean, the, the Germans just treated them abysmally. And so they didn't really have the physical capability to escape which of course is where the different the red cross parcels made to them was that ability to maintain a certain level of fitness a certain level of health staving off illness that sort of thing so you don't often come across escape russian prisoner of war but nonetheless rolf has met up with some and with them they were escorted across the river poprad and guided by a polish boy to a house where they then spent the night the following day they were escorted again by another polish boy to another house and in the evening they then met with the leader of a group of partisans who took them to his camp in the woods and they were to remain at this camp until the 4th of september when they were escorted to meet up with another partisan group On the way to meeting up with the second partisan group, they were joined by a further 30 escaped Russian prisoners of war. Surely this would attract attention, a large mass of people all moving towards the front, not in German uniform. Yes, it would, but then equally, they've met up with partisan groups who knew how to live off the land, guide themselves through the land. Rolf certainly sounds like he was in a position to be able to fire a gun, if necessary. Yeah, I get you. He's made quite a smart move by joining them now. There's always a trade-off with these things, but he's found a way to get nearer the front. Yeah. In relative safety. And with people who probably know the area. Exactly. So while they arrived at the meeting point, there was no sign of the partisans, so they were to stay in the area for a little bit longer, and then they started walking east again. Now, an interesting little point that he makes is this whole area was being fortified and trenches were being dug by Polish women under the supervision of German guards. That's chivalry for you. Isn't it just? Yeah. Nonetheless, that's still, spoiler alert, he does get through to the front line and meet up with the Russians. That's actually really useful military intelligence Mm. for the Russians to know, is all these locations of the trenches that they've dug. So this is actually quite useful for him to be gathering this information for when he gets there, because the Russians weren't notorious for treating escape prisoners of war all that well. No, we've seen that in previous reports. But he's coming with information. Yeah. So while they were travelling through this area, they were actually stopped by two German Feldgendarmerie who examined their papers and packs. While they had no issue with the papers, while they were going through their backpacks, they discovered some chocolate. Rather than getting either suspicious or just taking it, they insisted upon buying it off them. Oh, I did not see that coming. No. (laughs) And they ended up paying 20 zloty for them. 
and then sent them on their way. So not only have they got away with it, they're now... It up financially. Yes, <laughs> with local money. Excellent. Yeah, so they've actually come out of this quite well. <laughs> so again, over the next couple of days, they were to make contact with various Russian groups and partisan groups and continue to make their way east, slowly moving towards the advancing Red Army. And by this stage, we're into early September. So on the, And on the 9th of September, they were escorted to a farm about eight kilometres east of Patachkova. However, they had to move on pretty quickly because the German troops were actually billeted in the village. So they stayed at a farm nearby until the following evening when they were taken to another house. And on the 15th of September, the leader of another partisan group took them to a house nearby. And then two days later, a guide took them south to Bilanka and then continued to make their way southeast towards Banaka. On the 18th of September, they then met a patrol of Russians in Sviatkova, who took them to their local HQ, where they were interrogated by Russian army officers. So having joined up with the partisans, they have finally made contact with the Red Army. Hmm. On the 18th of September, so nearly a month after they escaped, they escaped on the 20th of August, and it's taken them a month to reach the Eastern Front. Of which the first few days got them quite a considerable way there. Yeah. Which shows how slowly they were making their way east, but I think that was probably quite a smart move because yeah. if you try and rush east, you get spotted either by the Germans or the Russians who think you're advancing on them, and they didn't tend to have a sense of humour about that. No. So by making them way slowly east and using local partisan groups to guide them through each locality, it's almost similar to the escape line in France and whereby you get the parcel treatment. Oh, yes. They're yes. almost being passed from partisan group to partisan group as each locality is known to that partisan group Mm. and slowly but surely they've made their way through these various partisan groups towards the eastern front and eventually made contact with the russians so having been interrogated by the russian army officers they then stayed with them until the 26th of september on which they they made contact with the main red army force in the area and he actually specifically says we were very well cared for during this period Now, to link up what I said earlier, he's just been interrogated by Russian army officers and he's coming at them with military intelligence, with information that is of use to them. Mm. He is, in effect, a valuable military intelligence source to them. So it's actually more in their interest to treat him well in stark contrast to previous prisoners of war who we've seen heading east and have been slung in jail for a month. So he was then sent further east, being sent by car on the 28th of September to Yasinov, and then again taken by car on the 29th to Trebuska. So again, slowly but surely, the Russians are now taking him east. Mm. But obviously he's now behind the Eastern Front. So having been moved east by the Russians to a village called Zheshov, he states that they were billeted there until the 24th of November. So he's been there nearly two months or so. Yeah. He says that they were then taken by air to Moscow. So he doesn't specify why in this escape report. In his book, he says the reason that they were there for so long is that's how long it took the Communist Party to take a decision. Really? Yeah. Wow. The sheer bureaucracy of the Soviet Communist Party in Russia, it took them months to come to a decision. Wow. Yeah. So Rolf actually argues that they should have just been sent to a British legation, some sort of officer nearby. There must have been some sort of liaison liaison officer, exactly. And Rolf argued with the Russian officers who interrogated them to just be sent to the nearby liaison officer. And they said, no, we need to send word to Moscow and it will take a month or two to hear back on the decision that they take as to what we do with you. Wow. And eventually the decision was that they'd be flown to Moscow. 
So having arrived in Moscow on the 24th of November, they were taken by car to a bungalow about 30 miles west of Moscow and they remained there for about a week or so until the 2nd of December. And again, he specifically states we were very well treated during this period. On the 29th of November, we were joined by a Sergeant Easterbrook and Private Man. Oh, we've come across these names before. Yes, indeed. We have covered both of their escapes before. We have. And in fact, when I said earlier that we've covered prisoners of war who headed east and were treated pretty poorly by the Russians, it is actually Easterbrook in particular, but also Man, to whom I was referring. Hmm. Because both were treated abysmally by the Russians upon reaching their front. Nonetheless, they've all met up in Moscow, or just outside of Moscow, I should say. And on the 2nd of December, they were then taken by car to Moscow and handed over to the British mission. So he's finally made contact with the British mission as requested months before. They were then accommodated there for a couple of days and then were escorted to Murmansk, travelling by train there. On arrival at Murmansk on the 7th of December, and it's actually quite incredible, it takes a couple of days Mm. to get from Moscow to Murmansk by train. Yeah. Nonetheless, they stayed a further two days and on the 9th of December, they left by sea for the UK. Now, they were to get back to the UK on the 18th of December, so it would take them nine days to sail there and were to reach the UK four months after their initial escape. Yeah, that is quite impressive. I mean, it could have gone, as we've seen with many others, it could have gone many different ways, particularly when he got to the Russians. But he was not out for the count at that point, shall we say, because he was awarded the military medal for this escape. And he also received a commission. So he went back to flying and he flew as a navigator on mostly Middle Eastern routes up until the end of the war and beyond. He was flying with 216 Squadron. It was interesting that he did actually meet Hillebrand Mm post-war. And he left the RAF eventually. He did his time. He married. He started a restaurant in South Kensington, which he called The Escaper. Excellent. I like that. Do we know where in South Kensington? We don't. Do you know what? I looked and I looked and I could not find it. I've, there was a lot written about Rofe about that time in the 1960s. Obviously, he, he wrote his book, as you mentioned, Against the Wind in 1956. So there seems to be a reasonable amount of coverage of him at that time. But he actually died quite young. He died in September 1977. So most of the stuff that I've found about him is from the immediate sort of 10, 15 years post-war. But yes, that was... The life of Rofe. He had a very quiet, married life, running his restaurant in London, wrote his book, and yes, passed away in Northwoods, September 1977, at the age of 61. Yes, it is very young. It is. I didn't get a cause of death or anything. I didn't find anything about any other family. I don't know if he had any children or anything out there. You know, a very interesting escape. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know more about his shoot down. The the, the referencing between shot down by a night fighter, shot down by flak, and accidentally ditching your aeroplane on a sandbank. Three very different... Mm. outcomes there maybe um, you need to read his book yes i should read the book in fact you have read the book haven't you dave how how was it i have yes so it's very full of details so if anyone does want to learn more about this escape it is worth getting the book because he really does provide you with a lot of detail and information and he takes you through all 15 camps it is also quite dense because of that a weighty tomb yes it's not a fast-paced book because he does go into quite a lot of detail. It has its merits because of that, but it's also, if you're looking for a quick skim read, it's probably not the book to get. But it was very useful for fleshing out and padding out some of the information contained within the escape report. So for that, I am grateful. Excellent. Well, that was The Life of Cyril Rofe. A very interesting escape, particularly one out through Russia. Good to see that he was treated well when many others were not.
Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.